Foxley is all about helping people to feel confident in dealing with difficult customers, build trust, and strong relationships. In this podcast, we talk to talented people to share insights and tips on how they do it. Welcome to Thinking Outside the Fox. Today on the podcast, I'm really pleased to have Bradley Hornby with me, the co-founder of Homebound. Homebound is a direct-to-consumer furniture-as-a-service marketplace launched to plug the gap of both an ever-growing rental market and increasingly environmentally conscious consumers who want to avoid high prices and fast furniture. Before Homebound, he was a commercial leader with over 13 years of business development experience, most notably within Fever, and he took them through various funding rounds and grew the team from four to over 160 people. Bradley, it's great to have you here on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So before I start at the beginning, tell us a bit about yourself, about your history, your journey. Of course. Um, so yeah, South African. Um, I came over to the UK probably 15 odd years ago. Um, spent a little time, like I guess job hopping, right? I, I worked on the underground stations for a bit. So I did a bit of handyman work. I even tried to pass myself off for a carpenter. Um, none of those things seemed to stick. So I went into the corporate world. Um, I did it about four years um, in Amazon. Uh, and I mean, again, it was, you know, good on the corporate side. It sort of, you know, laid in some good foundations, but it's certainly that sort of, you know, that highly structured days is, is definitely not where I thrive or certainly where I wanted to be. So um, I moved over from Amazon, uh, joined a startup called Fever. Um, I was sort of head of business development for them globally, grew the team from three to over 200, uh, launched multiple new markets for them, again, very much startup uh, in charge of all revenue generated. So very much like that field um, and always wanted to do something myself, um, although I'm you know, never quite sure what the, the magical idea was going to be. Um, anyway, got married, uh, was meant to spend a year traveling, but uh, COVID hit, so Came back to the UK, um, had you know a fair bit of time on my hands, like like a lot of people. And one of my colleagues at Viva, um, who has always wanted to start something, me and him got you know chatting one night in a pub, um, and we said, okay, well you know let's definitely let's let's start something up. And um, one of the ideas, or we we had a look at you know what was working really well. And, in other markets, but hadn't quite taken off in, you know, London and Europe in any significant way, because I think what you can see in trends is, you know, America, New York, and those major cities are generally around two or three years sort of ahead of where we are in terms of themes and trends. Um, And circularity and sustainability was sort of amongst the top things that we wanted to pursue. So we we spent a good couple of months researching, we put our own money in, uh, we tested a few ideas. And one of the ideas that kept on coming back, and yeah, I'll sort of go into it in a bit more depth, but um, this idea of, you know, fast furniture is, is really becoming a major issue. Um, so furniture rental, um, direct to consumer was the idea that we stuck with, um, you know, we tested it in very small scale. Uh, over a period of around six weeks, and I think we did about forty thousand in sales over six weeks, and we were spending I don't know, like a hundred pounds a month in marketing. So we were quite convinced um, that this was going to yeah. be the idea that you know we were going to double down on, and we went back and we built sort of a business plan and the structures, you know, and everything around that. Um, and then we launched um, Homebound, and obviously we're putting our own money in, and 
very soon, uh, I guess, into the journey, we um, we realized that we were going to need sort of venture capital for this to really take off, firstly, because of the cost of acquiring furniture. So we took it to the investors and, and pleased to say in sort of January um, of last year, we managed to close our, our pre-seed round and, and just did our first, you know, successful in inverted commas years. Um, and yeah, we you're really pleased with the results so far. So I hope that wow. gives you an, enough of a nutshell of, of myself and, and where yeah, I, it's amazing. And and I find I find it curious that um, the approach that you've taken and the approach being, you know, we looked at other markets, we looked at things that were working. So we decided we wanted to start a business and and didn't know where to start. Um, often I come across people in sustainability. When I talk to people in sustainability, it's like a lifelong passion of theirs. It's something that's really important. And and they then say, oh, I started a business because it's very relevant now. And, and I've, you know, oh, I want to work in this sector because it's very relevant now. And what you've said is almost the opposite. It's, I'm assuming it's not that you didn't care about sustainability beforehand, but you got to this because it seemed like a great opportunity. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, look, it's, it's, it, it was always sort of high on the list and we, you know, I mean, with, with most people moving in that direction, it's the direction of, of, of traffic. Um, it's definitely an area that we looked at, but it wasn't the, it wasn't the cornerstone of what we were trying to achieve. It's become more and more uh, as we've gone on. And I think like with anything, right, as you start peeling the layers back, you, you realize just what a big problem this was. I mean, you know, if you're sitting at home on your sofa, you know, the, the amount of furniture that goes into landfill probably isn't top of mind, right? And and as we got foot sort of further down this journey, we realized, oh, wow, this is actually a, a really big problem. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's not just here, right? It's it's everywhere. Um, and, and I think it sort of takes us along this journey. And, and what we found, and, and especially direct-to-consumer furniture rental, I mean, we were... You know, I was probably the most skeptical I've, I've been about anything. I was like, you know, will this, does this really have traction? You know, are pe- is this really a pain point for people? And what we found is, and we're, where we currently are in sort of society, is you have a really big segment um, or market of people who are on, you know, relatively good wages, um, who unfortunately can't get onto the housing ladder. So who are moving around a lot, you know, every 12 to 18 months, they're mm-hmm. finding a new flat. Now, the problem is, is some of those flats are fully furnished, some don't have any furniture, and you then have, uh, you know, a, a sort of a huge segment of people who don't want to go and spend a lot on furniture or the furniture that they really want because they're worried, well, if I move in 12 months' time, will the sofa fit? Will mm-hmm. this bedside table fit? And you find, that, unfortunately, that then leads you to a path of, you know, really cheap, fast furniture that um, if you do move, who cares? I'll just chuck it away anyway. And, yeah. and that's really the sticking point for us, right? Is giving the people the flexibility of, look, you know, come and you can have a really nice sofa or table or whatever the case is. And if you don't, um, if you do move in a couple of months' time, it's not the end of the world. We'll come and take it back. And again, it's it's about keeping that circularity. All of the sofas and, and items that we use are all modular. So if something does get damaged, you know, it's easy for us to replace. So, yeah. So how did you discover this? I'm yeah. curious because, I mean, you said there about it was a pain point and there's some insight there, right? There's definitely some insight of people who move house on a regular basis, but there's a difference between that and being satisfied by that. Um, you know, I was, I was reading uh, an article a few days ago about fast fashion and this, this element of fast fashion where 
you know, price matters and ordering three different sizes of the same T-shirt and 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 kind of be, all arriving the next day. And there was a company, I think Zara are really well known for being really reactive. So they're yeah. incredibly fast at turning around the latest designs from the catwalk. Yes. And they resort, they do so many designs a month or something that, that goes into their stores. But then I read about an organization, I think it's a Chinese organization that's like 10 times more effective than that. And, and prices are ridiculously cheap. There is demand for fast fashion. Uh, and, and I'm curious that, well, no, I hadn't, I hadn't ever heard of it with regard to, to furniture. I come from a history of people who seem to have bought the same, bought furniture and kept it for forever. That's my parents yeah. think I still have the same yeah. sofa that they, that I was born on. But, but then this idea of changing furniture on a regular basis, like, how did you come across and, and discover this insights? Yeah, of course. So, and um, it was during our sort of our discovery phase, right, of, of having a look at what was working, you know, really well in, in other major markets, but hadn't quite taken off in London. And we came across this, and and I, you know, again, I was I was skeptical. I, I thought as well, it, is there really the segment? You know, is this really a pain point for consumers? And I mean, luckily for us, you know, we're now just going into our third year, and we have customers who've been with us from day one, right, and they swap out or change their styles of what they like, different color sofas. And it gives them a huge amount of flexibility if they move to a slightly smaller apartment and they can't have a three-seater sofa, they're not just one or two-seater in an armchair. It's just giving them that freedom, right? They're not tied down. Vice versa, we've had people move from an unfurnished property into a fully furnished property, and they need to give everything back. And again, that's fine. It's not a problem. We can take it into our um, warehouse, make sure that it's in as new condition and get it back out. And, uh, uh, you know, this leads on, on to sort of another um, topic that I'm, I'm sure we'll get into is how do we measure what's kept out of, you know, landfill? And it, it's something, you know, myself and the co-founder discussed at length. And there are a couple of companies doing it, but I, I think it's a really hard, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to judge. What we do know, however, and what we have seen is that there's clearly a market for us. Um, we're still very much in our infancy, right? And, uh, you know, we get questions from investors all the time of, you know, how big can this be? And I think what we are discovering is it probably works really good in, in major cities. Um, you know, I'm not sure this works really well across the whole of the UK, more because mm. of the logistics side. Um, you know, does it make sense for us to drive four and a half hours to drop off one sofa and then, you know, back four and a half and then go and collect it? Probably not. And I think as well, on the, you know, if you're looking at the environment side, it's probably not the most efficient thing to do either. So hmm. um, we're still taking a, a huge amount of learning um, with regards to what we're doing and how we do it. But so far, um, and especially across London and, you know, the surrounding counties, we've seen that there's clearly a market. Um, and it, as I say, it's very much still day one for us. So, of course, this is, you know, the, I'm going to have to ask the question. Of course. Designs. Mm-hmm. and and function like furniture is is as personal as clothing and Absolutely. how do you cre- create a business of rental furniture that you can send to other people yeah. given that people have a different different tastes how That's, you know do you design and build your own furniture yeah it's a it's a really good question and the long-term plan is taking the learnings that we have and of course going out and manufacturing ourselves i mean it, it would be ideal. I mean, uh, 
certainly um, commercially it would make a lot of sense as well. But I think the partners that we've signed up are very much design-led and it cuts out a huge amount of time and effort from us to make sure that the suppliers that we do work with are all, you know, they're on the coalface in terms of the design, um, making sure that their products are exactly what consumers want. And if we can partner with the right suppliers, it cuts out that whole sort of segment that we don't really need to focus on as much as long as we're picking suppliers that are design and consumer focused. The other thing as well around that, and you know, if you do manage to go onto the site and have a look, we don't work with any, you know, chipboard type furniture. It's it's all solid wood or steel, marble. And the reason we do that is, you know, completely down to the fact that we want to make sure that these items are rentable for three, four, five, six, seven years, right? We don't want to have, you know, like you, I'm sure you've put together something from Ikea. Once that's put together, you're never going to take it apart and put it back together mm-hmm. again. So we focus, and, and I mean, commercially, it's 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 probably, especially early on, um, because these items are more expensive, et cetera, it's, it's probably not the easiest route we could have done. We could have gone and partnered with, you know, cheaper brands or, you know, cheaper manufacturers. The, the problem with that is, that just doesn't have the longevity. And if we want to build a sustainable business, we need to, you know, swallow our pride and take that hit early on with the goal of it being a, a long-term item, something, you know, like a solid wood table. You can rent, you know, that, that's got a, a lifetime of, you know, at least 10, 12 years. And if we can keep it in our ecosystem for that long, then commercially it does make a huge amount of sense. So tell me, um, now um, this is something that's really important to me. I I work a lot with clients who build strong strategic partnerships, and you've mentioned partnership there with your suppliers. Um, It's an interesting proposition for a furniture manufacturing to go and say, we want you to manufacture a table, and by the way, we're expecting that table to last, inverted commas, longer than perhaps you would, because we want to, we don't, this is our business model. How did you go about finding the right partners um, and building that trust with them so that they feel part of this journey? Because this is kind of a newish thing in the UK. I'm, I'm assuming you've, you've found UK partners or actually yeah. maybe that's part of the question is how did you find the right yeah. partners? <laughs> a little bit of trial and error. Um, I mean, with most startups, right? Um, with, with one of the suppliers, um, we so in the in the early days of this this whole business was self-funded. Um so the moment somebody would make an order on our website, we would go to the supplier and purchase that item from the supplier. The the problem with that, and I mean it you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand, is the cash flow, you know, the cash flow of the business is heavily hit, right? Um mm. and because it's a rental model, you only make that money back over X amount of months. So yes. luckily, because when we self-funded, we actually you know, we picked really well and we had to sort of move away from two of the suppliers just because of the sort of sustainability aspect of the business. But with the other suppliers, we, because we self-funded for, I think, the first sort of year of the business, we had built those strong relationships. And we got to the point, and especially once we managed to close around the funding, we went and we sat down with them and we were like, look, guys, this is how it is. This is what the roadmap is like. This is the numbers so far we happy to work with you. I think, you know, you guys seem happy to work with us. These are what the projections would be. Um, the nice thing about your sofas and your tables is we can replace legs or arms or whatever the case will be. Um, but in order for you to be on this journey with us, we need to renegotiate the payment terms with you. 
because otherwise the business cash flow wise is going to really, you know, it's, it's going to be really painful for us to grow at any sort of rapid rate. And the problem, I know, I'm sure we'll move on to the funding side is in order to go and raise capital, especially through venture, you need to have a certain amount of growth, right? And, and mm. the growth being at least 4x year over year for you to even have, you know, meaningful conversations. So in order for us to achieve that, we needed to focus a little bit more of that cash flow on marketing and actually growing the business. And again, I think it was starting those relationships early. You know, we met with the suppliers on a monthly basis, making sure they were happy, keeping them in the fray of what the business plan was. And again, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of suppliers and manufacturers these days really, I don't know how focused they are on it, but really like the idea of the sustainable and circularity model. And I think even for them, it was like, oh, wow, this is something new. You know, this this hasn't been happening and, and this doesn't happen a lot with direct-to-consumer. So we've managed to get um, three sort of suppliers on board now. We work with an awful lot. Um, again, that whole relationship side is, is really important. Um, they fully kept in the fray of exactly what we're doing on a, the business front, and that means keeping them up to date with where we are with investors around our, you know, raising of funds because we're looking to go out again in March to raise our, our seed round of funding. So it's that transparency, right, um, that I think is really key uh, and making sure that everyone on board, because they're super important to us. And I mean, now that we're a little bit further down the road, you know, I think we are so starting to make a big impact on their revenue lines as well. Um, so it's important that, that that piece of the suppliers and the partnerships. So one of the things you said in that was about mm-hmm. trial and error that you you know you had a bit of trial and error finding the right partners what were your lessons what were your biggest lessons from that either the things that worked that you just went wow um, you know we got that right or things that you learned the errors that you got wrong yeah. i think in the beginning um and it's like with 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 anything um you sort of go for that shiny piece and i think when we first started out, we were focused a little bit more on the commercials rather than the longevity. And we soon quickly learned that actually the longevity of the items is more important than this short upfront commercial piece. Because so you mean, we, when you say commercials, you mean the price you pay exactly, for it? Exactly, exactly that, yeah. And the, low, you know, the, the whole idea of, okay, well, if we do buy a table, you know, is it going to actually withstand you know, because if, if an item for us doesn't last at least, you know, say three or four years, commercially, it doesn't make a huge amount of sense for us to acquire that item, right? And these are all assets that need to generate revenue if you look at it on a business front. Um, so taking a little bit more time to understand what our overall strategy needs to be early on would have saved us a bit of time. And, it, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And you always look back and be like, oh, we could have been a bit smarter here. But I think understanding the strategy early on of what you need to achieve would have made those at least the conversations with the suppliers a lot more straightforward because I think you you know and especially when you're young and you don't have any revenue behind you you sort of you dance around with like oh yeah we're going to achieve this or we're going to achieve that without focusing on look this is the reason why we need x y and z and this is going to be our long-term goal and I think if you can understand that early on it just makes those conversations a lot more meaningful um, mm-hmm. and again saves yourself and the supplier a lot of time yeah and so let's go on to this element of vc how easy a sell was it into venture capitalism um the the almost you know the underwriters of the consumerism world how did you get on with those guys (laughs) um it's a lot of trial and error (laughs) Um, it's uh 
yeah, look, it, it's, I mean, it was, it was tricky. Um, it was hard. And when you're so young, I mean, luckily we, we had, you know, relatively good growth. I think another thing that um, VCs really liked was the fact that we had self-funded and we had got to a certain level of, uh, of revenue before we sort of reached out. So in one hand, you know, we had skin in the game, for lack of a better word. Um, they could see that we were super committed. Um, I had been through many rounds of funding with my previous company, so I knew roughly, you know, what I was talking about, or, uh, the reason why I was valuing the company at a certain point. Um, and I think those, those, those bits are, are important. I think as well, um, and I know it's it's probably mentioned a lot, but I think it's important to get no's early on in conversations. And and the reason I say that is there's a lot of VCs or you know and analysis or you know partners in, in VC firms who like to have conversations and it's a good call and I'll follow up an email and and they sort of just drag you along a bit and when you're early on and you're just searching for money, you sort of chase down every lead and keep in contact and. It, Fundraising in itself is is it like a job, right? It, it takes an awful lot of time. It's a lot of conversations. It's a lot of follow ups, and I think if if when you push for a no or like you you push for an answer, right? And if it's really not for them, then that's fine. At least it saves you time. Um, and if some you know you know what what we certainly found is if somebody is remotely interested in the idea, they do get back to your emails, you know. And if somebody isn't getting back to your emails. Chances are they've moved on, so stop chasing. Um, all things that, uh, again, in, in sort of in hindsight, it would have been you know good to just sort of move on. Um, but when it's young and it's a pre-seed round, you do chase and try and close you know absolutely everything, and it takes up an awful lot of your time, which is better spent actually growing, building the business, right? But that's a that's a parallel with so many organisations, and I know that. Uh, sales leaders in across industries have this pipeline and their people are trying to sell and they get customers who show some interest and and at what point do they they kill the opportunity and i i've been in so many meetings over the years with people saying oh no no no, they're definitely interested or (laughs) this is we're just waiting for this to happen but that pushing for a no is such good advice Mm. and and really, you know, I, I hear a lot from senior sales execs who say, you know, it's it's rule things out until they rule themselves in almost, you know, yeah. put the onus on them to, to want to buy. But we're yes. so keen, as you say, to to reach our tar- targets and objectives. Absolutely. And, and the, the interesting thing about VC funding is you're very much selling, right? You are yeah. selling your business for a price and whatever you can That's you can get them. Uh, and, and so it's not that different to a normal sales process. No, it's it, yeah, you you hit the nail on the head. It's it's really not. And the you know the, the, the other thing as well is you should almost try and sit on the other side of the fence, right? No uh, no VC or um, even angel for that matter um, wants to lose out on a good deal. But everybody wants to see your traction and how you're going and, and you know, it's sort of keep you within a fray. So you need to try and understand it from both ends. Like, yes, they sort of want to a little bit interested. The problem is with keeping, you know, 20, 25, 30, 40 people interested and, and, and on the hook is, is almost impossible, right? So early on, uh, and I mean, especially now for this next round when we go out for seed funding is, I'll certainly be looking out for if there's genuine interest. And you can tell, right, um, pretty early on, if it's just, oh, send me a follow-up email, they're probably not that interested. And if they are, 
generally people will come back to you. And and if they're not, and especially in, in this sort of funding climate, right, where it is extremely tricky these days to to raise, um, just rather move on, right? Um, and there's a load of people. And I mean, I remember there were days I literally would lock myself in a room and do nothing but cold calls and cold emails for full days. Um, literally, yeah. that that's all I did. And you might get three or four responses, you know, in, in a day's work. Um, and and yeah. that's what you just said. It is literally, it's a full-time hard selling job to sell yourself in you get a meeting i mean i i think our our close rate would have been about two percent of reach out but but even that it's worth it right and and coming up now it's funny i had a board meeting last night um and as part of our roadmap is uh, and our plan is to have a really strong q1 build the seed deck and then go and start raising on the seed deck and one of the questions the investors even asked is look while you start this 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 funding you know, the going out and looking for funding. Have you built in the bandwidth for the company to run without you, knowing full well that you will almost sort of need to take yourself out of the day-to-day running of the company to really focus solely on fundraising, you know, at, at least what, until you've got up and you have those conversations going? Because especially in this climate, it's very unlikely that you'll go out, have a conversation and get a term sheet. It's more likely that you'll go out, have a conversation, they'll be interested and probably track your progress for a month or two before, you know, having that really meaningful conversation. So, um, yeah, it's, it's weird, right, how the, the sort of the funding landscape's changed over the last four years. But anyway, we, uh, we're looking to, to hopefully tackle it in, in April, May time. And what, so what was the answer to the question? Have you built in the capacity yeah. in the business? <laughs> I mean, uh, yes. Yes, we have. I think we've made um, – we recently bought on uh, an operations director – Who's, who's really hit the ground running. Um, he, he sort of ran a massive warehouse and logistics company out in New Zealand. Um, so he's really hit the ground running. And I think we, on the business development side and the side that sort of I focus on quite heavily, my co-founder focuses a lot more on the operational side. And I think we will definitely be in a position where I can sort of take a step back and focus at least, I mean, full days are probably not, but at least half a day, I can take out and, again, just lock yourself in a room and, and really double down. And the nice thing is, and, I mean, people do say it, but I had conversations during my pre-seed uh, round when we were going out and looking, and there was an awful lot of, you know, companies that said, hey, you know, come back once you have a bit more traction or the check sizes were too big for what we were currently looking to raise. So there's an awful lot of cold leads that I've kept up to date with our progress in the hope that, coming to our seed round of funding, they've at least, you know, it's, it's not a complete cold intro. It's, hey, guys, you've seen our progress over the last 12 months. You know, we've hit milestones, um, even above milestones that we had sort of preset ourselves. So I'm hoping and touching a lot of wood that um, this next round won't be as challenging as the first. But, that, but it's an interesting lesson there because I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. pushing people for a no Mm-hmm. Can, creates the conversation of it's not now. So mm-hmm. look, we, you, you're just too small. We, we're looking to be investing into you know spending more money into bigger organisations, um, but we like what you're doing, and that becomes a not now. 
rather yeah. than a no, not interested. And a no, and what you're trying to do, I guess, is push for the people who say this sector's not for us, this business it type's is. not for us, uh, we have no experience of this kind of stuff. You know, yeah. the people who just who are who are never going to be interested or That's... unlikely to be interested until you're, you know, at the point of saying, well, we now get to pick and choose who we invest. Absolutely, yeah, exactly that. But also the nice thing is, is when you are pushing for that no, you get you get down to that to that point, right? It's like um, you know, instead of dancing around, you know, because we we spoke to VCs that their minimum check size was a million, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and that's great because if we move to that stage early on, well, I know that you aren't going to invest in this round, but you really do like the idea, and I'll put you on the bag of when we get to seed round once we're a little bit further down the road. But mm-hmm. at least you have that clarity. Because the last thing you want to be doing is chasing somebody for, you know, four, five, six weeks for them just to turn around and say, hey, look, our minimum check size is a million. In which well, case, you, you know, yeah. you, you, you're at the point where, great, good to meet you, good contact to have for later and move on to the next one. Um, yeah. And I think having that clarity early on is certainly a time saver. Yeah, brilliant. So I want to go back. I want to go back now and talk about the um, sustainability and measuring success. You, you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. tracking whether you've made a difference or not uh so i have two questions here the first is um is it important to you that you know that you're doing it and is it important to your customers yeah so i think look it's really important to us that we start to measure this the the how we measure this, and, and we've had conversations with, with companies and, and we feel that their answers were a bit wishy-washy, um, you know, and, and, and it's, not, it's not because of lack of trying from their part. It's more because it's an extremely hard, a hard thing to judge, right? And what I don't want to do and, and what we've tried to avoid is just putting up, you know, sort of a random number there that ticks over every time we sell a sofa because we, you know, we think this is how much we've, we've saved of CO2 or how much we've saved from a landfill. I would rather not put a number there than, with, than putting uh, sort of a number that's inflated or just looks good. I, I would rather be certain or at least have some measure around, hey, this is the number and here's how we work it out. And the here's how we work it out part is super important to me because I want to read that and be like, okay, that makes sense or that's fair enough. Um, you know, if we say, oh, well, for every sofa you rent, you've saved however much CO2 from, from, um, from the atmosphere. I just, I, it, needs to, it needs, in my mind, to be a fair assumption of what we've done. And we've spoken to companies, and I, I just sometimes feel that, that the way that they work it out or the way that they're proposing to work it out just feels a little bit uh, misleading, for lack of a better word. Um, and to your second part of the question... So when we first started, I thought in my mind that the sustainability and circularity aspect of it would be more of a driving point for for the cell than it sort of it's turned out to be. Now that's and and there's a sort of a parallel here. So we work a lot with direct to consumer, and then we work a lot on the B two B front. And it's actually on the B two B front where we see that the sustainability and circularity model is is way more important than what it has been on the direct-to-consumer stuff. Although I think it's nice to have on the direct-to-consumer stuff, I don't think it's at the forefront of somebody making a purchasing decision through us. 
But on the B2B side, we've had numerous conversations with a lot of, especially event organizers, where actually the sustainability and the circularity thing is, is a really big driving force. And it's something that they do pay close attention to, right down to, you know, questions around, oh, well, what wood do you use? What fabrics do you use? How, you know, how is it manufactured? So I, I think that the consumer stuff is definitely moving in that direction. But I, I certainly don't think the sustainability angle is a, as is yet a purchasing decision, if that, if that makes sense. So is that, um, it goes back to the earlier point yeah. of your, of the, of the pain point. Yeah. Um, I'm a big believer in really understanding, um, the pain point customers have. Mm-hmm. And, and I, a friend of mine explained this in, in two ways that, that I really liked. He said, there's two, there's two ways to sell product. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, catalog selling. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but catalog selling is, I know what my problem is and I know what the solution I'm looking for. Why should I choose your products? And I'm looking through a catalog of, of solutions to, to do that. And that's one type of selling. And then the other type of selling is um, I actually don't know that I have a problem yet. And so you go in and explain what the problem is. And then they look at that and say, oh, wow, yes, that is true. Um, either because they didn't know there was an answer to it or because they've just accepted that as as a way of life. And and there are so many products and services that we use now that that we didn't know we had. And and I love the Henry Ford quote of, if I asked people what they wanted, the answer would be faster horses. Nobody was looking to buy a car. Um, And so your point earlier on was the pain point consumers have is I'm moving apartments every two years because I've got a new job and I need to move across town or, or whatever. And, and my furniture, I can't take with me. Um, and so I'm having to sell it online, which is a pain um, or throw it away or I'm buying crap that I don't mind throwing away rather than furniture that I really want. None of that is the pain point is I'm concerned about my impact on the planet with the furniture that I buy. Do you think that reflects the reason to buy? Yeah, uh, I, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. I think we are very much still falling into the second category, um, you know, of, of, of that sell is I think that people, I mean, the majority of people don't even know, right, we are a service um, or what we offer. So I think we are definitely in that second category. And again, although I think the sustainability piece is a is a really good, nice to have, and I think on the B two B front it makes a lot more sense on the B two B front. I think uh, on a consumer side, it's still like sort of back of mind, right? It's a it's a nice to have as part of oh great, instead of buying a you know a sofa for two thousand pounds, I can rent one for a hundred pound a month or, or whatever that case uh, may be. So. And then as part of that, oh, well, great, you know, there's a real big sustain- sustainability piece. I think a big part of what we will do, and, and look, you know, and, and let's sort of call it what it is, right? In these early stages and pre-seed through to seed, it's really about driving numbers, right? Bottom of the funnel, all the conversions we can get, we need to prove concept in a meaningful way to hopefully go out and raise that seed round. And when you close the seed round, you have a, you know, a slightly bigger bank balance and you can focus a little bit more around branding and sustainability and all of those key benefits that you probably miss off when you're still so early and just you know really hoping to crunch numbers to make sure that you as a business and you know everyone you've employed gets to make it through the next couple of years right because it's i mean you know let's 
startups are, are tricky. Um, and, you know, it's, I wish we had some of the budgets, you know, some of the, the, the larger players in the space have, because you could go and focus a little bit more around that aspect and get people talking. But I think in the early days of where we found ourselves, it's, it's more a case of survival, right? Um, and then, you know, as you get later on in your journey and you get bigger investors on board, you have a little bit more bandwidth to focus in and hone us, you know, and hone us in on all of the um, additional elements of what you're offering. But as part of the research I've done for this series, we've talked to a number of different people within the sustainability space. And I've got a number of clients for whom sustainability is really relevant. And and hence the, the reason for doing this series yeah. was it is something business leaders are asking questions about. Yeah. And they're asking questions about opportunity because we can launch products and services or we can change our business model or whatever around sustainability. And the overwhelming feedback that I'm hearing from people is that consumers don't care about sustainability directly and the parallel i've drawn is like a restaurant sustainability is like having a clean kitchen and you know asking people will you go to my restaurant because i have an incredibly clean kitchen and people then say well actually every restaurant should have a clean kitchen it's a reason not to go to a restaurant if the kitchen is not clean, and actually I maybe need to ask more questions about whether the, the the cleanliness of the kitchens that I go to, but my choice of restaurant will be driven by the experience I have, the quality of the food that I get, not not the fact that it's it's clean. And and sustainability feels very much the same. That the, the you know the solution to people moving apartments twenty years ago was buy cheaper furniture. You can leave it behind. You can throw it away. Who cares? It's it's only cost you a few pounds anyway, so what does it matter? And now the solution is, no, buy high-quality furniture that you only need to rent. And then if you move, you can modulize it. You can take it with you. It's less important. Um, it's a different solution. Now, the side effect is that that's a much more sustainable solution for a planet with limited resources. But I don't know if we're going to get to a point where consumers are going to say, well, I'm going to choose this furniture because it's sustainable. I still think they're going to want to buy it because it's quality and it's design and it's and its ability to be flexible. Yeah, absolutely. Abs- like, I completely agree with that whole statement. Um, I think, you know, when NFF, you know, we probably should have screenshotted our, um, our website from when we first launched because when we first launched, we very much led the the aspect around the sustainability. I mean, it was at the top of the website and, you know, it, it was very much the, hey, this is a much better way, you know, to to acquire furniture. But actually what we found, and we obviously tweaked, you know, A-B tested a bunch of things. And, and actually what we found is people firstly care about design, comfortability, color. Um, you know, those are way more important in terms of actually driving a conversion than having... We're a sustainable marketplace for furniture rental, right? Um, so, again, to sort of echo what you just said, I, I completely agree with that. The the strange thing, and, and I mean, it, a lot of these things are almost led by business. Um, so on the business side, the B2B side of the business, which makes up about 40% of, of our revenue, um, so, you know, not an insignificant amount, they are very much focused on the sustainability angle. Mm. Now, whether it's a case of, you know, internally they've got targets to hit or, um, you know, they've set up processes that they need to follow. 
the sustainability ang- angle on B2B front is way more important. And I think, you know, on the, uh, like what most people find, B2B side is they're way less price conscious as well. Um, they are very much asking questions around sustainability, circularity. Oh, great. We really like the pre-loved angle of your business. So it, it's... Do, I, do you know why? Have you, have you explored as to I, what's the uh, motive there? Yeah, I think as... I, th- I think with most businesses now, you really want to show that you are taking the environment and the sustainability angle of the business or whatever you're doing to, you know, show that it's um it's an important piece of what you're doing. And I think with them using us as a, you know, a pre-loved and we make sure that the items are getting rented out numerous times as opposed to just going to buy a little table or whatever the case is, it's definitely a strong, a strong point. Um, and I think that that'll continue. And I, you know, on your point of do I see a societal shift where actually consumers are uh, sustainability driven as opposed to price driven? I think you're right. I think that'll take, you know, certainly a long time um, for that swing to happen. The nice thing is, as you can certainly see on the B2B front, that pendulum is swinging slightly in the favor of sustainability. And I think with a lot of things, right, you, you sort of need somebody to lead the charge and and hopefully it becomes more and more of a thing as, as we get through. I mean, I, I think this consumption, you know, the, the, the consumption that we have as a society is just far, far too high. And we mm. can't sustain the consumption that we're going through at the moment, right? I think whether we like it or not, we are moving into a world where, you know, resources are becoming limited. And we do need to take this, this side way more seriously than we're currently doing the one, the one thing I, I, I will say, and we, we've sort of, we've we've avoided it till this to, to this point for a number of different reasons, but you know certainly health and safety and the rest of it being uh, being hard. But the recycling of electronics and certainly tech gadgets um, is certainly growing in popularity. Right, there's sites that you can go on and get mm. a secondhand phone and a secondhand laptop, etc. They they really starting to take off now. Again, it might be price driven, but I do also think that again the societal shift is happening, and you don't. Uh, it will take a long time, and there will always be people who are just you know price conscious or <laughs> just want something cheap and quick and whatever the case is. But I do think hopefully you know we're all moving to, and and I also think you know by choice or or by whatever the reason, I think we have to as a society move towards something that is more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Totally agree. So, um, I, I, we're, we're we're short of time, but I'm curious to go back to the question around measuring your impact on sustainability, and and you talked about how important it is for you. What do you think is is worth measuring? Because there's so much water consumption, use of materials, plastics, CO two impact. Um simply waste you know just generally kind of saying this goes into into a landfill like where would you i'm not saying where you start start, but but (laughs) for you specifically where do you guys think that it is making an impact or would make an impact so i i think it's again it's you know it's definitely a conversation we've had numerous times and i I think if we could almost start at the, the waste, the landfill side, right? If we could come up with um, a sort of an explainable and measurable way to identify how much waste we could potentially be saving from landfill, 
I think then if we could come up with that answer, it probably makes working back from that point, you could then try and extrapolate out into water saved CO2 and, and all the rest of it, right? But I, I think as a starting point for us, it would need to be okay if we are keeping, let's just say a sofa, if we are keeping a sofa within the circular economy over a four-year period and we have six different people using that, then could we extrapolate that back? Okay, well, we've saved at least one or two sofas from landfill. And mm. if you can start at that point and work back, then things, I think, become a lot clearer. And, and I think I touched on it a bit earlier. For me as, as a founder, and I always want to, you know, especially if we have something on the website and we start shouting about it, certain numbers, I just want to be able to, if somebody challenged me on those points, and it's the reason why we don't currently have anything on there, it's because I want it to be, I've wanted to fundamentally make sense on a, on a, like if somebody says, okay, well, how do you get to these numbers? I want to be able to sit them down and say, look, this is our, this is our sort of method behind the madness. These are the reasons why we said X, Y, and Z, and this is how we extrapolate it out. And I think if you can get to that point and you feel like you can justify, you know, the reasoning behind some of the assumptions you make, because I've seen on certainly some of the websites I've seen, you know, there's, these wild sort of assumptions. And I, I just want to make sure before we start advertising or putting, you know, certain numbers to certain things that ourselves as a company are happy and we can justify those mm. numbers behind it. Because I think there's a lot of greenwashing, you know, at yeah. the moment. And I just want to make sure that before we move down that road, we have a really strong position on this is why we said, and these are the reasons behind it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, final question. Yeah, of course, yeah. What are your biggest lessons since you set up the business that you think that you would share with other leaders, other people um, thinking about these same kind of challenges? Yeah. Um, So one of the things that we probably should have done a little bit sooner, uh, myself and my co-founder don't come from a financial background, and we probably should have brought on board. um, So we recently brought on board a, a CFO. Um, who's helped immeasurably, right, with regards to the whole business. And if you don't have that finance background um, within the business, we probably could have started with somebody a bit sooner. Uh, that would certainly be, you know, one. Of, and, and again, in, in this day and age, you don't even need somebody full-time, right? You, there's loads of, of sort of different places you can get a sort of part-time CFO. But getting those numbers in check was, was really important for us and certainly saw a, a turning point for the company around the middle of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one. And then the second one, which um, is sort of, we laugh about it now, but it was a, it was a big problem. Um, when we first launched the company, and I mean, this is I mean, almost really silly on our part, but we launched the company, great, we're doing rentals, everything's, you know, fantastic, smooth sailing, revenues in. We then found out from one of the investors, he's like, oh, but don't you need to be FCA approved? Um, and if you rent anything in the UK for longer than three months, you need to have an FCA license. And this was a major speed bump in the road for us. Um, so again, if you're doing anything, <laughs> if you're doing anything like renting or anything like that, I just check the legalities around it and make sure any licenses, etc., you need, uh, you sort of you know cross those T's and dot those I's because it can be a bit of an ugly surprise. 
Oh, I mean, that's massive. And I can hear, <laughs> and, and, and there's a whole adage people have about uh, founders and entrepreneurs saying, you know, say yes, and we'll work out how to do it later. And we'll learn as we go <laughs> along and, you know, we'll fix it as we get to it. Um, I could imagine yourself getting yourselves into some huge difficulties yeah. <laughs> with, you know, having a number of customers who are renting product from you and then the FCA knock on the door because, you know, someone's reported you for something. And, and, I, and I don't think that conversation ends well, does it? No. So, um, and look, luckily for us, I mean, we were sort of four months into trading and um, the, this flag was raised and we went with our, um, you know, hands in the air to the FCA and we were like, look, we're really sorry. Um, you know, we sort of, we, we had only, I mean, we, luckily we hadn't signed thousands of contracts, but, you know, we had a, numerous contracts and we were like, look, we, we're really sorry. Sort of tail between our legs, like, um, you know, please, can we go through all of the processes? You know, we're happy to do it. So we, we luckily, we, we sort of, we got through that, but um, it's certainly, you know, these sort of things can be avoided. And again, you know, we, we sort of need to take the knocks on the chin. You know, it, it probably is a, a fault on our side, but, you know, when, you, when you're a startup, you just want to move so quickly, right? And you, hindsight being, we probably should have checked these things in, in more detail. Anyway, luckily, we're still here to tell the tale and, you know, we still have a chuckle about it every now and then. But certainly <laughs> make sure you do um, all the due diligence as possible. Brilliant, brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Bradley. It's been a wonderful conversation and, and really some really insightful stuff there around your experiences of, of building this business. And we wish you the best of luck. Tell us before uh, yes. before we finish, how can people find out about Homebound? How can they get involved? How can they rent some, some furniture from you? Yeah, of course. So look, firstly, thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, and yeah, if anybody wants to rent uh, anything at all, furniture-wise, just go to homebound.co.uk. You can email me directly, bradley at homebound.co.uk, if you any partnerships or anything. Um, more than happy to have conversations. And uh, likewise as well, any founders who are going through FCA approval, want CFOs, uh, please do reach out. I'm more than happy to help. Amazing. Thank you Fantastic. very much, Bradley. Great conversation. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. That was Thinking Outside the Fox with me, Chris Weber. Our next episode is out in two weeks. Join us for more great conversations on how to build winning customer relationships. I'm looking forward to it.